On today's episode of Give First, Techstars Managing Director, Martin Schilling, of our Berlin program, shares what he's written about recently in his new book, The Builder's Guide to the Tech Galaxy. You don't want to miss it. He talks about the importance of a super clear North Star. He talks about how to build what he calls a AAA team. And he talks about capital acquisition, which I know a lot of you are interested in. The book is really practical. You're going to love hearing some of the tips from Martin on this podcast. Don't go away. Hi, everyone. This is David Cohen, and I'm here with my amazing co-host, Brad Feld. Hey, Brad. And this is the Give First podcast. And in the startup world, Give First means simply trying to help anyone, especially entrepreneurs, without any expectation of getting anything back. So we'll be talking to mentors and founders about what Give First looks like in action and how it makes great entrepreneurship possible. We polled everyone, and they said consistently that their favorite part of the show was the legal mumbo-jumbo. So here it is. The following discussion is an expression of personal opinion and does not represent the opinion of Techstars or any company we discuss. Our conversations for informational purposes only, including any mention of securities or funds. This is not legal business investment or tax advice and is not intended for use by any investor. Certain of Techstars funds own or may own in the future securities in some of the companies discussed in this podcast. Got it? My guest today is Martin Schilling. He is the managing director of Techstars Berlin, our amazing program in Germany. He's very involved with the German startup ecosystem and the German Startup Association broadly. He was the COO of a large fintech company. He was part of McKinsey. He's founded several startups and a foundation in Argentina. Martin, thanks for joining us. So excited to talk to you. Likewise, David. Thanks for inviting me. So coming to us from Berlin, Germany, you are the managing director of Techstars there. How's that going? You're in the middle of a lot of stuff right now. Absolutely. You know, it's my first program. I joined Techstars in 2021. And uh, it has been an amazing time. I'm deeply enjoying working with world-class founders and helping them to take them to the next level. Super exciting. Um, I see how entrepreneurs are changing the world and we as Techstars are contributing to this. And yes, I'm very exciting about it. It's a really cool market. Um, I've spent time across Germany, even in, in Berlin specifically, and it's a, it's a beautiful place to be as well, which I know startups love to be in places that are awesome and fun. I know you're involved with the German Startups Association more broadly. Yeah. Just spend a few minutes. Tell us what's going on in the startup community in Germany and in Berlin specifically. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we are in the European startup ecosystem now at a inflection point. That's why it's really exciting. Capital pools in Europe have never been deeper Talent pools have never been deeper. So we have, for the first time, really a generation of second or third time founders. Totally amazing. And the whole policy framework around building startups is finally starting to move. This does not only apply to Germany, but as well, for example, to France and other countries. And we, as the German Startup Association, we try to boost framework conditions. You know, this is about getting better ESOP framework in place, employee stock option frameworks, or this is about incentivizing pension funds to invest more in VC. So we are learning from the U.S. It seems like it's progressing quickly. I mean, you know, every time I've come back over the years, it seems like there's more and more startups I've heard of coming out of there, more and more angel investing and, and new funds being created. So it's it's an exciting time. You're an entrepreneur yourself. You've, you've had an extensive background and, and built several companies and organizations. And most recently, you threw all that into a book, The Builder's Guide to the Tech Galaxy. I want to understand why did you create that book and what's it all about? 
the story goes like this. I founded a couple of companies. I worked for McKinsey many years, helping McKinsey clients create companies. Then I was at a point in my career where I said, I would never want to work for banks and insurances. At this point in time, the founders of N26, a large European fintech, called me and said, hey, Martin, don't you want to scale this up with us? So we did this together. I joined the company when they had around 300 people working for them. I left them a bit more than two years later when they had 1,500. I was the group COO, and this was an amazing scale-up story. We had product market fit, and we just got a lot of money, new customers, and we scaled it up in a record time. Of course, we made a lot of errors. I made a lot of errors. My colleagues made a lot of errors. And one reason for this learning experience was we could not find a single source where we could learn on how to scale startups. This is in Europe still not so common than in the US. We're doing this more and more, but the knowledge about it is not yet so broadly distributed. That's why I decided after this amazing scale-up story, I just put together with my co-author Thomas Klukas all in one book. I interviewed more than 100 scale-up experts from around the globe, from Amazon, uh, Get Your Guide, N26, of course, and many other companies, HubSpot, etc. And then we condensed this into a book, The Builder's Guide to the Tech Galaxy, which aims to shorten learning curves of other scale-up builders. And I know it has a very European tech focus. Why do you think that was needed? What are the differences or, or what was missing for that specific startup community versus maybe a book that you might buy in the US, for example? I would say this is a book for tech ecosystems which are not so developed as New York or Silicon Valley. That really fits well to tech stars because we are, we've observed in the European tech ecosystem, but beyond it, you know, when you look at South America or India, for example, that there are ecosystems where just the knowledge, the know-how on scaling is not yet so implicitly available through just builders who have done this a couple of times before. That's why we've written a very, possibly a bit German, but very structured book where we say, look, there are four big areas. North Star, there is flying with a AAA team. There is functional excellence and there is growth capital. And we condensed 99 practices into these four pillars to help other startup builders build scale-ups. Awesome. And I'm sure you charge thousands and thousands of euros and you're really doing this for the money, right? That's the reason you wrote the book. Am I right? Yeah, that's why I started as well in Texas in the first place, which I really like. I like yours and, and all the colleagues uh, approach this. It is, in essence, a gift first book because together with my co-founders, we are deep advocates on scaling up the European tech ecosystem. Why? Because we as startup builders, we are the pioneers of our times. We are the inventors of the 21st century to a certain degree, and we will need to build millions of future jobs. We are currently losing in more traditional industries, and there is an element of technological sovereignty of our nations. So there are bigger topics at stake. And I believe that we as startup and scale-up builders are contributors to the big, big topics. I think that one thing that a lot of people don't really understand is where job creation comes from, where people are going to be working in the future. All net new jobs really are coming from startups, right? They're yes. 
those tiny little organizations that you and I spend our time on, a lot of them become pretty big. And, and that's where the employment of the future is going to come from. And as you said, we're losing jobs in more traditional industries. So it's really important to the future of, of all countries around the world. And obviously, a lot of people like yourself leading and, and sort of giving first into that opportunity around the world. Absolutely, David. And you know, this is a known factor in the US. You have, for example, the Kaufmann Foundation doing very good work on this. In Europe, this is not yet, let me talk only about Germany for a, moment, for a moment, but in countries like Germany, this is not yet totally clear to everybody that this small startups, the small companies who then scale fast, they are really a driver of job creation and, and wealth and opportunities for many. And that's why we're doing this whole work in the first place. Look, another reason why I've written the book is often, at least in Europe, we have builders, startup builders who are not yet sure if they really want to go out, venture into the unknown and build companies. The book is as well meant as an encouragement for those to really go out and dare to build startups. Cool. So as people are, are digging into the book, what are the specific types of things people will learn? I understand it has structure, but how will they use it? What, what will they do? So will they use it as a reference like, or will they have a specific problem? I know there's 99 tactical things in there that you talk about and go to that chapter to deal with that problem. Or how do you think people will use it? It is usable as a single source when you have a startup that found product market fit and you want to scale it up. So, you know, the sweet spot of the book is you have, let's say, a startup with 10 to 20 people and you now found product market fit, you get more and more money and you now want to take it to a thousand people organization. It's not a book about creating a startup. It's about scaling a startup. Literally, when you think about you are on a pirate ship with your pirate crew and you want to beam the crew up to the bridge of the USS Enterprise, that's where the sweet spot of the book is. And we have put in the book a lot of checklists. We have put sample OKRs from different startup functions. We have built a lot of tactical advice in it as a one go-to book for yeah, scaling companies. Awesome. You know, you gave me the Star Trek reference in the opening, so I got to take it. <laughs> um, and I like for listeners of this podcast to find out special things that you can't find out about anywhere else. But if you look at the original Techstars logo, which we retired a couple of years ago, not the new one with the underscore, but the original logo, and you look at the negative space in that logo, the Techstars logo, you will see the Star Trek emblem in the negative space of that original logo. So nice. thanks for throwing out the Star nice. Trek reference. Didn't know it. Interesting. No, of course. You have to look at the, not the positive space, but the negative space. So <laughs> I, I know I'm going to get a couple emails on that. And I just, there are other Trekkie fans that will appreciate that. So I'm throwing it out there. So in the book, you have a section called North Star. And of course, Mayal Gebe, who's the CEO of Techstars, talks a lot about the North yeah. Star of Techstars and all of us internally. We know what, what that is and what we're trying to accomplish and what it means. Talk about the advice you give for scaling a startup and its relation to this idea of the North Star. Yes. I have seen some startups doing this exceptionally well. I've seen many startups that struggle with this topic. Why is the North Star absolutely critical? There are three major reasons. First, if you are clear a startup builder on your North Star, you will attract a lot of investments and investors because if you are unclear, it's often an exclusion criteria to invest. Even if we as Techstars, we invest in companies, we prefer this if founders are very clear on their North Star. Two, it's about growth and profitability. Startups that are very clear on North Star and direction, the ample studies just grow faster and have more 
profitability. And three, it attracts AAA teams. So if you are very clear, for example, on your purpose, you will win the war for talent. Very good, very strong startup builders and leaders will come to you because it's, it's, it's very attractive to work for you. That are three reasons why a North Star is really critical to have. Talk a little bit about a good North Star versus a bad North Star. Maybe you have some companies you've worked with recently or something that you think did a really good job on this. Let's make it real for people. North Star obviously is sort of that guiding light off in the distance that you make all your decisions around, right? But what's an example of one you've seen that's really immediately struck you as, okay, that, that's a good one that people can get behind it versus one that's maybe a little more weak or vague? Yeah, absolutely. A good North Star has six dimensions. If you want to do it really well, that's how you can do it. So first, it's about purpose. Why does your company make the world a better place? Two, it's business ambition. What's the global category you want to lead? Three, company values. What are the guiding principles that align your team? The so-called North Star metric. What's the one guiding KPI that you should focus on? Five, customer value proposition. What's the unique benefits you create for your customers? And then finally, OKRs or some kind of goal-setting framework to make this all operational. Yeah, This is a very well-defined North Star. You see companies, for example, such as Airbnb having this. I'll give you a textile example. We have one company in the batch, which is called Melanin Capital. They have a super clear North Star. I just love this. Literally, they say, we are enabling African entrepreneurs to have better access to capital to create more wealth and literally more employment in, in their regions. And they have a very strong, we call this founder market fit story behind it. So they literally say there is Melanie, she's the CEO, she worked for a German bank and could not convince the banks to invest in African SMEs. And on the other hand, there is Ian, her co-founder. He was an entrepreneur in Kenya and could not get access to capital in Africa to build his companies. Then he met her in Germany and asked a challenge to, hey, why don't you invest in us in, in Africa? And then literally they got together and founded Melanin Capital, a Texas company, to solve this problem. That's a very clear purpose. It's not yet the full North Star, but at least the purpose. And that's very inspiring. So once you have this purpose and you want to add the other dimensions that you talked about to the North Star, do you recommend like that founders or entrepreneurs write that down on, on a single piece of paper and share? Or what form do you think it should take? Because a big part of the challenge, of course, is communicating it to everyone. Absolutely. You might know it, but other, other people might not know it. And the famous line, I'd never know who to give credit to, is, you know, if I'd have had more time, I'd have made it shorter. Yes. You can create a North Star statement that easily fits on a page of paper, I would imagine. This famous line is from a German poet named Goethe. Um, Mark yes, Twain what? sometimes gets credit, but I don't think that's accurate. So. Oh, Mark Twain is serious. Well. I never say because I'm never sure. <laughs> that's another data point for me. Interesting. Yeah, maybe we need to figure out if it's from the US or Germany, maybe from both sides somehow. So look, what I recommend to um, startup builders is to be at least at the very early stages to be clear on three dimensions. And to your question, of course, you need to write it down and you need to iterate. So that's as well, for example, what we do in a Texas program, we help founders sharpen this out. It's very easy to ask the question on the North Star. It's extremely hard to answer this. So, you know, the typical three errors I see here is first, not being clear enough about purpose. Yeah? So purpose is 
It's about why your company makes the world better. So for example, Google says organize the world's information and make it universally accessible. That's a good purpose. And a good purpose statement usually has three components or three characteristics. First, it's timeless. It's a timeless societal good beyond initial stakeholders of the company. So for example, Google in, the, in this example, if an Indian father in a mountain village downloads a math exercise for his daughter, the daughter profits from Google's organizing the world's information, but it's not a direct customer. So their statement, their purpose statement reaches beyond initial stakeholders such as customer. That's one. Two, it's always not related to profit or growth. And three, it's never completely attainable. So when, for example, Uber says transportation as reliable as running water everywhere for everyone, that is never fully attainable. So that's a good, good purpose. Yeah, I mean, I know when you see it, right? It's one of the things that you, you read it like, okay, I get it. I understand what you're trying to do. I understand why you're trying to do it. And I understand what the ambition is. Because I think ambition is a huge part of this one, right? You're trying to help people understand that my ambition is not to create wealth for myself. That's not going to make yeah. others want to help you or attract employees. Whereas a good North Star will do all of those things. Absolutely. And that's right, right David. The second key thing is, is business ambition. When we define a business ambition with a startup, we always ask them, your startup, global leader of X, what is your X? So what's the granular category you will lead? So here are a couple of examples from Textiles company. So we've one safe space they're called. They say, we will be Europe's number one technology-driven storage and inventory management platform by 2030. Very clear. Technology-driven storage and inventory management platform, that's the category they want to lead. Or, for example, Melanin Capital, the one I just mentioned, they say, we will become the number one African ESG investment platform for high net worth individuals and family offices by 2030. Very precise category they want to lead globally, or at least in their region. That's a good business ambition. And relatively near term in both of those cases. Yeah. And, you know, the vision, the broader North Star, of course, is, is farther ranging, as you said, maybe can never be met. But sort of coupling that with clear ambition and a time frame that people can get excited yes. about, yes. right, makes a big difference. Or David, you mentioned Mel, um, our CEO. She says, you know, we want to become the best pre-seed and largest pre-seed investor in the world with 5,000 pre-seed investments by 2030 as well. Very clear business ambition and very powerful. Miles, a good example of the next topic I want to get to. You call it AAA team. You know, this is a team is so important. And, and, and at the stage that, that we invest in every day, it's so much about team, right? A great team is going to figure out where to take the thing they're interested in and create a great business. You have a whole section of the book dedicated to this idea. It's so important. So what are the mistakes you see entrepreneurs making in this area of building a great team? Yeah, so there are many. When you ask me about the top three, there would be the following. So first lowering the recruiting bar when under time pressure. That's a typical thing I have personally done a lot. And I over and over recommend to our founders not doing the same mistake. And that's actually far more difficult than one thinks. I had N26, for example. I had a situation when I came in, customers had to wait half an hour before they could reach someone on a telephone line. Far too, too long for a bank. And in this situation, you need to let fires burn rather than jumping on the fires and kind of extinguish yourself, you need to hire firemen and firewomen, triple A firemen and firewomen, to extinguish these fires. And it's very easy then, you know, you, you're starting to recruit, you have a talent pipeline, you're not so happy, and then you just take the person which is best in the pipeline, and that's an error. You just 
should never lower the hiring bar when it comes to hiring talent. So that's that's one. Um, another area what I'm seeing of is failing to build a talent acquisition muscle. So that's something startups as well in the early phases really need to understand. It's, of course, not only putting out a job description and then look who comes and applies. It is about going out in the field, in the woods, and hunting the best candidates. Yeah, so you need to go out and on LinkedIn, GitHub, Honeypot, Stack Overflow, and personalize, send them personalized messages, etc. Yeah, these are two key areas in Triplity. So there's a little bit of a paradox here because I know at your previous organization that, that you helped scale up in 26, it wasn't founded by a bunch of people that had you know deep fintech experience and maybe you would have said, oh, that's the best possible team, right? It was some young people trying to figure it out. How do you balance between sort of they don't have that much experience, they're really ambitious, and sort of targeting the best talent, which is easy to identify through their experiences and skills, because both can be really useful in building an organization. Absolutely, David. And when we make investments here at Texas Berlin, that's the two categories of founders we look at usually. The one category is those who have a very skill-based product market fit. So you have worked a couple of years in your industry, you know exactly a problem which you have figured out in, in a job, then you create a company which solves this. So that's the one type of founder. The other type is usually directly from university or, you know, with not so much experience. It can be, you know, half a year working experience and then you do it. That was, by the way, the example at N26. Both founders had literally zero experience in the financial industry, really nothing. But they had this drive and vision, this determination to really change an industry. And you can almost see it in the eyes of founders if they are so excited about a problem. It's often they're not skill-based. It's more mindset-based. So they have this hunter skill and passion on a certain topic that they just will execute on it whatever it takes. And again, it's not about experience. It's not about age. It's about a founder's mindset. I think we we intuitively understand that for new company creation for for startups, right? It's this intrinsic motivation, right, that you see in the in the eyes of the founder. They're they're motivated to change the world because of some personal experience, even though they don't have experience in that industry necessarily. Do you recommend that though with a scaling organization? Let's say you've got product market fit. Do you just go out and hire, you know, as they say, good athletes that can learn to do anything? Or do you think it's important to really look for someone with direct skills and experiences to fill those positions as you start to scale that company? What we did at N26, and this really, I think, is a good advice, a good playbook. So there is always room in a scale-up for generalist pirates, you know, literally those from the early days, which scale with a company, which is inspiring to see. If people literally joined as one of the first 10 employees and then grow into their roles, you should always have room for those. But if you scale, you need some content and functional experts. So for example, if you're running a supply chain organization, it is extremely helpful if someone comes in and has run a supply chain organization already once. And what we always tried to do, and that's what I recommend to startups as well, is have a good mix of both. So you have one on the one time the generalists and you have the specialists and they usually work, work together. That's good advice. I think especially when you're trying to build a department that you know is going to be super important, right? And to have nobody that's ever done it before yeah. <laughs> around yeah. the table is a hard one. But to have some people that that have and others that are just willing to figure it out and are those good athletes, I think can be really valuable too. And you know, this creates a lot of great learning environment. 
the young ones, the generalists really appreciate the, the more experienced one. I have seen when I hired more experienced colleagues, really interesting people with 50 joining the company and they, after a couple of months working with this, they looked actually 10 years younger. Very interesting. So <laughs> people get younger when they work with startups. Interesting. It is. You know, I would be remiss not to mention the book has a great section on capital acquisition too. And a lot of people listening, they're always interested in that topic. <laughs> and sometimes I think it's the only question they want to ask. Let's just spend a couple of moments helping them understand what's in the book. And again, let, let's make it about, because I know the European market is is a bit different, less mature in some ways, right, than maybe the US market, for example. When you talk about capital acquisition in the book, what do you focus on? Because I know you're focused on that market. So this part of the book is actually not so different between Europe and the US. They are literally what we as Texas was, was relatively similar to the book. The top three errors, which I have observed often what startups make in capital acquisition are the following. The first, not being really well prepared before you go out for fundraising. And that just means you get an investor reaching out to you, you suddenly you stumble into fundraising mode. Ideally, you have then suddenly a term sheet, but then you, what do you do? You don't have anything to compare this term sheet with. Even worse, you're doing this kind of fundraising for 12 months without being fully prepared, without being fully in. It's often, almost always not good advice, just starting unprepared. And what does great preparation for fundraising mean? This means a couple of documents need to be really in place. It's your full investor deck. It's a financial model. It's your investor pipeline sheet. It's a super clean capitalization table. It's a strong FAQ list for investor question. It's a company one pager. And then you have a data room with more documents, you know, financing, literally the, all the key contracts, org charts, et cetera. The advice we give to startups is you are overprepared. So literally, even if it's in the early stage, an investor approaches you and you can tell them, look, here is a link to my data room. Here are my five documents. And it just looks extremely clean and prepared. This is just a fantastic basis to do fundraising. So that's one. Two, not creating enough FOMO, fear of missing out with investors. Yeah, so the ideal process is the CEO takes two to three weeks only doing fundraising, 100%. Then you do as many investor talks at the same time. Three weeks, you do ideally 30 to 40 calls. And then ideally you have the term sheet negotiation. What does this process, how does it benefit you? You then casually can drop, you know, an investor talks to you on Friday and then they say, oh, I'm interested. Like, can we have another discussion next Tuesday? And then you say something like, well, Tuesday is difficult. I've already lined up four partner calls. What about Thursday? You know, so you drop casually that you are literally the next uh, hot big thing to invest in. You could do that with data rooms too, by the way. You can drop extra documents in the data room that someone didn't even ask for, right? So yeah, clearly exactly. those other activities. Yeah. You know, Brad Feld, our co-founder here at Techstars, often talks about JOMO. Did you know that? Do you no, know that? Is, the joy of missing out. He says he loves, <laughs> he loves when he's missing out in all of the fear that others are trying to create. Because he really wants someone that wants to work with him. So, you know, I think FOMO is a tricky one. And I'm glad you talk about it in the book because I think sometimes founders hear that and they create this in a very artificial way. And one of the problems I say, FOMO is great if it's real. Yeah, yeah. When I talk about fundraising, because when it's not real and you say, well, you know, we're almost done with the round, we're closing next week. And then a month later, you're still raising money, you've lost all credibility. Absolutely. So I think it's a fine line yes. as well. Absolutely right, David. But that might be now again, a bit of a difference between the ecosystems. What I'm often observe here in Europe is that inexperienced founders do not, although they are very strong, create, communicate enough to investors that they are really strong investor interest. And I totally agree to you, it should never be manufactured. 
But if you are, if you're starting to get good investor traction, you should, you know, really be very clear about it and yeah. share it. Right? Use it if it's real. Use it if it's real. For Absolutely. Sure. The final thing which one could mention is being too humble when interacting with investors. So there are founders who are really, really good at this. In every investor meeting, the investors should pitch as well to startups. And that just means, look, at one point in the call, tell them, hey, there are so many VCs out. Why should I take money from you? What's the thing that sticks out? You know, there, there should be one point in time you should um, let investors pitch to you. Awesome. Well, these are just a few examples of some of the things that are covered in the book. There are a lot of scenarios, a lot of very practical things in it. And as you said, while it is focused on the European ecosystem, it's useful in general. I, I enjoyed sort of looking through it and, and understanding different pieces and it gets the mind moving. So thanks for writing it. I know it's a gift first activity. I was teasing earlier. You're not doing this uh, you know, to make money. You're doing it to share what you've learned with the world. And that's the definition of gift first. So book is a builder's guide to the tech galaxy. It's available where? Everywhere, I assume? It is. And if you go, for example, to Amazon, even in the US or in Europe and around uh, the ecosystem in the world, you should be able to access it. We'll put a couple of links in the show notes and make it easy for people. And I know if people are visiting Berlin, want to check out the ecosystem, right? They'll look you up. I'm sure you're happy to connect them, uh, given all the great work you're doing there. And thanks for taking some time to hang today and talk about it. Pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot for listening to the show today. We'd love to hear your feedback, ideas, or who you'd like to hear next on Give First. And please leave a rating and review, ideally a good one, and reach out anytime to podcasts at techstars.com or on Twitter, I'm at David Cohen. See you next time. Don't forget, Give First. First.